0: So that brings us on to the main business of the meeting tonight, where we have a fascinating discourse, which I see has attracted widespread interest, and not only from the older members of the Academy, I'm pleased to note. Uh, It is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Roseanne Kenny from the Mercer's Institute for Successful Aging, also James's Hospital, and the Neurosciences Institute in Trinity, uh, to give us a discourse on the optimistically titled End of Aging. Uh, Professor Kenny is, of course, well known for her studies in this area and perhaps most of all for the uh, very extensive um, TILDA project for a long range longitudinal study of aging, which I'm sure we'll hear something about. So, uh, Professor Kenny, can I invite you to give your discourse? And you will excuse us if we sit down because we want to see the talk as well. So.
1: Mr. President, members and colleagues, thank you very much for this great honour. I'm delighted to be here in this lovely environment, and, and you're all very welcome, young and old, because if we don't age, there is only one other alternative, and obviously most of the younger members of the audience aren't planning on hitting that other alternative too soon. I'm just going to cover briefly what I intend to speak about tonight, so you know which bits you can maybe sleep at and which bits not. I'm going to talk first of all about the huge demographic change that will occur in, globally, but particularly um, in Western cultures over the next very short period of time. We'll talk about the longer-lived known animals and the reasons why um, they perhaps live to such um, long such long lives as two and four, up to 400 years. We'll talk a little bit about cellular structures which enable um, extended lifespan and newer uh, research which has uh, indulged in manipulating such pathways to extend lifespan in animals and then some of the correlates with those extended um, uh, 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 pathways in, in some humans. We'll talk a little bit about what we can do today to make a difference Uh, with respect to um, extended healthy lifespan. And uh, I will speak a little bit about TILDA because it will give us a picture of what it's like to age in Ireland today. I'll talk a little bit about research in this domain, uh, national research, which is really important with respect to technologies and and other um, areas. And finally, we'll end on a a favourite of mine, is how we can maybe alter... Uh, society to engage with ageing such that uh, we make Ireland a better place to grow old. People are living longer. Up to about 100 years ago it was exceptional for uh, uh, more than 3, maybe 4% of the population to be over 65. And then a 100 years ago a remarkable thing happened. These are records from uh, this list of countries which have accurate records of, uh, of death and birth from 1840. And as you can see, it's a straight line, extended lifespan. So um, 50 in 1860, 55, 1880, 1900s, almost 60, etc. In fact, lifespan is increasing by three months every 12 months, or five hours per day. It's phenomenal. And it's estimated that half of baby girls born today in Western countries will live to 100 or beyond. These are the demographics for the EU 27 countries. And as you can see in uh, the 200-odd, the the biggest proportion of the population is in this middle-age group. But as they grow older, we see a huge increase in the 70 pluses, in fact, the biggest increase is in 80 pluses proportionately, more so in women than in men. Although recent research would suggest that this gap is is narrowing. Now, this is remarkable that we we can expect an increase over the next 20 odd years of people over the age of hundred of a hundred by about 400%. I mean, to live to 100 was was rare a few years ago. It's no longer rare. And I'll talk to you about some genetic studies which are of great interest now in centenarians. And again, the proportion of people over the age of 85 over that 20-year period globally, globally, will increase by about 150%, and to a lesser extent, the over 65s, et cetera. So this is the, this is the baby boomer coming to realization and of course the reason these proportions are changing so much is because fertility rates are dropping at the same time and these are are really remarkable statistics from even least, least developed countries where we can see a marked decline projected over the next 40 odd years in fertility rates. The United States is here in blue and that decline has happened earlier there. Japan, in yellow, starts low in 1950 and has bottomed out since 2000. And in fact, in 20 years' time, 40% of the population of of Japan will be over the age of 65, a remarkable statistic. So fertility rates are falling. And in Ireland and in many European countries, in Ireland shortly and in many European countries now, the proportion of people over the age of 65 will have outstripped those under the age of five. Now, of course, this has huge implications, and I'll touch a little bit upon this a bit later, for health care, social care, but also economics, uh, Germany will shortly have up to 35% of its population over uh, 65. And uh, again, globally, on average, about 25% will be over 65 by 2050. So a huge, huge change in our demographic globally. Why? because healthcare is very, very much better, and it's ramped up dramatically over that 100-year period and continues to improve. We're much more aware of the things which keep us healthy and enable longer, healthy lifespan. And I'm going to continuously stress the healthy component of this, because I think most people, if you ask, if they, if, if we know we can have a, health, a, a, a longer lifespan, our wish is that it would be healthy. Most people don't probably want the experience of one of the oldest currently lived persons who has spent the last 25 years in a nursing home, albeit in the south of France, and who's been blind for a significant proportion of that period of time. So the biggest challenge for us as physicians in this area is to enable healthy, happy, extended lifespan, not just extended lifespan. Believe it or not, our lives are less stressful, certainly less stressful than they were a hundred years ago. And that makes a difference. And I'm going to touch on this whole area of physical stress, but also psychological stress and how it influences lifespan. And our environments are better. Our health and general environments are very, very much better. So, when you're born... We can expect in Ireland that a man would live to 77 and a woman to 83. And as I said, half of baby girls born today in Ireland can expect to live to 100 or more. Anybody in the audience who is 65 and well can expect, if you're a woman, to live for another 22 years. And if you happen to be 75, you can expect to live for another 15 years. If you're a man, 13 And if you're 85 and well, you can expect to live for another 10 years. When I present this data to some of my physician colleagues who aren't maybe that familiar with this area, they gasp. Because certainly until recently, there's been quite an ageist attitude amongst the medical profession. And I met a cardiologist from Sligo the other day, he knows I'm going to cite this story so he won't mind, he's in his uh, late 50s, and he told me when he started practice, first of all, in Sligo, there was a notice on the coronary care door, patients over the age of 70 will not be admitted, except under exceptional circumstances, in coronary care, exceptional circumstances. <laughs> And he said to me, ironically he said, that today patients under the age of 70 are there only under exceptional circumstances because with extended lifespan we're pushing out the boundaries of disease also. Diseases associated with ageing are also occurring later. So now we're going to reflect on why we age, what happens at a cellular level to to, um, cause ageing and what are the particular genes that extend lifespan and is it possible, and this of course is where this dramatic and if not slightly exaggerated title came, is it possible to augment the activities of those genes? Now, up until not that long ago, it was thought that the aging process was something that was haphazard and uh, that it wasn't uh, regulated in any structured way. But we now, of course, know that it is very much regulated by classical signaling, by classical signaling pathways and transcription factors, as with most other cellular processes. And it's modulated by wear and tear of the cell. And all of the, all of the, Components that we're going to talk about which encourage and enable healthy longer lifespan are all related to this modulation process of cell wear and cell tear, oxidative stress. The mutations which are known... Uh, in animals, particularly to extend lifespan, are dependent mostly on two sensors nutrient or nutritional sensors and stress sensors. By that, I mean internal cellular stress sensors. And there are specific genetic instructions which drive this whole process. And actually, laterally, some science and, scientists in Harvard, and I'm going to discuss their work a little bit, have actually identified a way in mice of switching these genes and these genetic instructions off and on in such a way that they were able to age the mice and then they switched the uh, telomerase on again and the mice be- the mouse became youthful and in fact organs such as the brain and fertility reproduction organs actually also became youthful we'll talk a little bit about that later These are the ten animals that that, that live longest and what's interesting about these is that they give us some insight into into the importance of this wear and tear mechanism. The sea urchin, known to have lived up to 200 years, the oldest. The Antarctic sponge, which doesn't move, of course, it's an immobile creature, has lived, as far as we know, 1,550 years, the eldest. This jellyfish possibly has... No aging process per se, in that it ages, but can also, is recapable of recycling and becoming youthful again, so it, it, it transitions from mature adult back into immature polyp. The saltwater clam, this ugly, large creature, the geoduct, up to 160 years, and the Tuara is one of our uh, apparently last living dinosaurs, and the longest-lived member of that group is 200 years. Tube worms, 250 years. Bowhead whale, 211 years, the longest-known-lived uh, bowhead whale. I love this story about the koi um, Hanaka. Imagine naming your longest-lived koi fish. Died at the age 226 in 1977. And of course tortoises, long known and well, well known by Darwin. And this is actually a picture of Harriet who um, shared that epic voyage uh, with Darwin and was died aged 175 years in Steve Irwin's uh, um, zoo in Brisbane. And the longest-lived tortoise is 250 years old. And of course the clam, also up to 200 years. But the thing that all of these long-lived Animals share is resistance or mutations in oxidative stress, which slows down dramatically this wear and tear process, which is, is otherwise a limited process in which ultimately the wear overtakes or so the tear overtakes the repair uh, process. So can we, knowing that, with respect to the stress, cellular stress, oxidative stress, modify aging and maybe bring an end to to the aging process? And these are the last few cell slides for anybody who's saying, oh my God, but I will try and translate these in such a way that you understand why the simple mechanisms which extend lifespan work in, in humans. All of these factors here, cited here on the left-hand side, are known to modulate genes within the cell which govern lifespan. Dietary restriction is the best known, and that's the one I'm going to focus mostly on, but heat, oxidative stress, uh, ambient temperatures, other signals, chemo-sensory and uh, uh, thermo-sensory, reductions in the rate of respiration and in translation. All of those factors influence the genes which govern lifespan. A very um, well-known receptor is the insulin IGF-1 receptor, and that's what we're going to focus on for a little bit here, which influences the gene centrally here, DAF-16, which is very important for aging. Now, the, the role of dietary restriction in longevity was first noticed during the Depression in the USA, where rats because of the depression. It was was considered at the time that they would be dying off much quicker because of the lack of food, and in fact, the opposite occurred. They were living longer, and that's what started this whole question of dietary restriction and longevity. And... We do know now in many animal models that dietary restriction influences this pathway and some other pathways, for example these pathways, to to modulate lifespan through the DAF16 gene. And the good news is that when aging slows, age-related diseases are also postponed, So if we can target ageing, we might better be able to target the diseases we naturally associate with ageing, because actually ageing is about age-related diseases per se. The big ones like Alzheimer's, stroke, falls and balance immobility problems, Parkinson's and hypertension. And that's the purpose and should be the purpose of age-related research in terms of, of longevity. And what's good about this, we know from animal work, that if we can manage to tweak one or two of the genes, we don't have to go through this whole cascade of genes, if we can tweak one or two, that tweaking reverberates throughout the tissues and resets a new homeostasis in the cell, and the whole of the cell is rejuvenated. So we don't need to to work on all of the known genes involved in aging, just a few, and it has a knock-on effect. This worm, um, C. elegans, has, has told us an awful lot about the aging process, and it's remarkable how these very simple organs actually, organisms actually share a lot of uh, pathways, sensors, uh, transmitters with, with humans and with other uh, larger animals. Starvation, or dietary restriction to about half of its normal dietary intake, doubled life in this worm. But what was remarkable, what is remarkable, is the worm looks young. So if you compare the worm with dietary restriction with its age-matched control, who hasn't had dietary restriction, the age-matched control looks like an older worm. So imagine you're having a meal with a 30-year-old young worm, and the old worm sharing your wine is 70 That's the equivalent of what happened with C. elegans in this experiment. Now it was was through changing in this insulin IGF-1 receptor and signal that dietary restriction imposed this extended lifespan and youthfulness on C. elegans. And we now know that small dogs, and any of you who have got small dogs will know, that small dogs live longer than large dogs. And actually small dogs carry a mutation for that same pathway, insulin IGF-1, which is why they live longer. And we also now know, latterly, that um, centenarians in, in the uh, cu- cultures who have been ex- uh, examined and researched also carry perturbations in these receptors and signaling pathways. The Ashkenazi Jews, uh, Japanese, and, and Japanese of Hawaiian uh, extraction was one of the first studies in this domain. Italians, it's Italian centenarians, Californians, New Englanders, Germans and Chinese. It's not that we don't know about the Irish who are 100 plus, we just haven't studied that cohort as yet, but it looks like this is a very important mutation for longevity in, in these long-lived people. And what's very interesting is recent work from Germany, where centenarians, uh, German centenarians, were more likely to have perturbations in this particular insulin IGF-1 activity than Germans who were 90 years old. So, so that's of, of interest. Now, I I spoke earlier on about manipulating the genes and work from from a group in Harvard. And and you'll hear a lot uh, now in the literature about the telomerase enzyme. These are chromosomes which which make up genes. And at the top of the chromosomes, there are little lit-up bulbs here which protect the chromosomes and enable it to divide and enable this whole uh, repair process in the cell. They maintain uh, cell um, structure and cell integrity. And these little yellow dots at the top of the uh, chromosome are called telomeres. And for their um, viability, they depend on this enzyme, telomerase enzyme. Now we know that with aging, the activity of that enzyme decreases. Telomerase reduces in its its, um, uh, vibrancy. And that's associated very progressively with shortening of these little telomeres. I I liken them to shoelaces and the plastic bits at the top of shoelaces which protect the shoelace. And you know what happens when they start to fray, the material in the shoelace starts to come undone and they're much harder to tie. So as we age, that's exactly what happens to the chromosome and the tips of the chromosomes. And then this group in Harvard discovered... A milestone, really, in in aging um, science published in in Nature this year, that by creating mice um, in, in 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 which they were to manipulate this telomerase switch, they were able to make the mice prematurely age, and then they flipped the switch in the reverse direction, and actually the mice became younger. And particularly, they were able to dramatically reverse many of the aspects that we associate with ageing. Brain disease that the mice had started to develop, and infertility. Now, of course, this is a long way away, as yet, from human studies, but it was a really landmark piece of research. And it's not just landmark in the whole context of ageing etc. It's very important in the context of the diseases, the age-related diseases that we talked about but also to to, to know that um, quiescent adult stem cells in severely aged tissues remain viable. That hadn't been apparent before and can be reactivated by this repair tissue damage mechanism. So that's the kind of dull sciency piece over. How can we, as individuals, um, extend our lifespan? What can we do to make our lives better, healthier, healthier, extended lifespan? And the three that I'm going to focus on now are diet and dietary restriction. And, and I think you can understand a little bit from the cellular work we've referenced how that might work in humans. Exercise, and I'm going to talk to exercise both for the body and the mind, and then social networks and stress and the importance of social networks in, in healthy life extension. I like this expression from Brigitte Bardot: "Sad to grow old, but nice to ripen." Now there are copious diets out there, and I've chosen one that I personally believe has there's a lot of scientific validity for what they say, and they've actually um, worked very hard to validate uh, the recommendations. It's, it's not anything new. Um, you'll have heard it all before, and I know people are inclined now to switch off when we say, you know, exercise is good for you. Switch off. telemerase off. Uh, diet is good for you. Oh, that's so dull. But I'm going to try and contextualize it and explain why, specifically why, these are so important. This diet is about... Uh, First of all, knowing your basal metabolic rate. This applies to all diets. It's remarkable how many people aren't familiar with their basal metabolic rate. So you might go on a 1500 calorie diet, but if your intake, your basal metabolic rate, your intake of calories and your your, your rate is about 1300, then a 1500 diet isn't going to lose you any weight. So you have to have some sense of what your basal metabolic rate is and then obviously target any caloric restriction to less than what your, your, your requirement is. This is about no sugars, very low fat, no salt, say no salt, lots of vegetables, lots of fruit, because that's where you get the antioxidants, and we, we, we emphasized earlier on how important oxidative stress is, even in those long-lived animals. Pasta and grains, 100% whole grain. Fish, very important. Game, very important. Chicken, all of these we can take. Red meats, other than that, don't appear here, as you can see. And that's for many reasons. They're, they're full of fat, actually, but also today, unfortunately, hormones. Bread, whole grain bread and soy milk are low fat. That diet is very effective, very effective in, in, for people who've got diabetes, but also has been shown to extend lifespan and healthy lifespan. And just to give you some some sense of food calories per pound. Now, it's usually young females that we're addressing when we're talking um, diets or, or people who have got heart disease or diabetes. At any stage, if you introduce this calorie restriction diet, you improve the health or one's health improves by, by, by incorporating the diet. And this just gives you a, an idea of calories per pound. So they're low in vegetables 65 to 195. Compare that to nuts and potato crisps 3000 per pound. Lean red meat 200 plus per pound. Butter, 3,200 calories per pound. Non-fatty dairy foods, 180 to 450. And potatoes, pastas, rice, whole grain corn and cereals, 450 to 650. So that just gives you some sense. So you can imagine if you fill yourself with fruits and vegetables and just a little bit of these, that will be a good diet with respect to balance and caloric restriction. And these are just some, there's five rules that we we use to, to to counsel people with respect to diet. Don't drink your calories because it doesn't work, it doesn't fill you. You end up taking lots of calories and still not being satiated. Sequence food. If you're out, if you're out for a meal, have you know a salad with plenty of vegetable to start. That'll fill you pretty much. And, and remember to sequence your food so that you're taking the, the bulkiest low-calorie first... And leave any heavier calorie foods to last and you won't feel like finishing them. Eat when you're hungry. Don't stuff and starve. So small, frequent meals are much more important. Lots and lots of veg with fruit. And remember, the darker the veg and the darker the fruit, the higher the antioxidants. Okay, that's diet out of the way. Exercise. Uh, Mark Twain, age is an issue of mind over matter. And if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. I'm going to first of all focus on the uh, role that exercise plays in physical uh, ability and physical strength. And there are three types of exercise, strength, flexibility, and endurance, and a combination of all are actually m- most important as we get older. And if you can, build, if you can get that combination, that's the best. But, but any of them are, of course, better than none at all. Regular exercise has huge physical benefits. Uh, We're much less likely to get thin bones with with regular exercise, Uh, much less likely to get heart disease, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, uh, falls and fractures as a consequence, of course, of this and falls, some cancers, particularly colon cancer, bowel cancer. I'll come on in a moment to, to stroke, but also dementia and Parkinson's disease and high blood pressure. So it's got lots of very beneficial um, outcomes even Plato knew that lack of exercise destroys the good condition of every human being while movement preserves it so that long ago and yet our behaviour is such particularly latterly, that exercise isn't something that we're doing as regularly as, as our, um, our uh, previous cohorts were uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago exercise isn't just good for the body, it's good for the mind. And these are two pictures of a, a young brain and an older brain, and like it or not, as we age, our brains do reduce in volume. But I'm going to show you some evidence to to show how exercise actually can increase volume of some parts of the brain. And you've all heard this before. It's a fortunate person whose brain is trained early again and again, and who continues to use it to be sure not to lose it, so the brain in old age will not wane, written by two well-known neuroscientists. And I'm going to now focus not just on physical activity, but also some brain exercises which make a difference to brain aging. So if we use kind of cross-sectional data and ask uh, questions about engagement, uh, what do you enjoy doing, um, and how you fared with respect to activities, reading, taking classes, uh, learning a new language, learning to play an instrument, uh, challenging games or attending concerts and and plays, those who are most active in any of these domains or all of the domains have reduced cognitive decline. Their their cognitive abilities decline much, much more slowly than people who are, are sedentary, if you like, in the context of these brain challenges. And they've also reduced rates of age-related neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and like Parkinson's disease. And there are a number of studies now in this area, and, and it's also one of the areas where we're focusing in a big way on in, in Tilda. Remarkably, Kramer's group has shown in a number of elegant studies that the size of the hippocampus, which is where your memory is, and of course memory is one of the first components of Age-related cognitive functions to decline. Yeah, uh, uh, people say, "Oh, it's my age. I can't remember, you know, where I left something, or I can't remember uh, what I went up, to, what I came up the stairs to to, to get." Apparently, it's it's uh, it's uh, indicative of early Alzheimer's if you can't remember halfway up the stairs whether you were going up or down. That's the the difficult bit, not what you were going up for. Um, but exercise increased. Uh, volume brain volume in 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 cases and controls of uh, w- when the scientists looked at the right hippocampus and the left hippocampus of these patients in these are these people in these studies and the change actually occurred as early as 6 months after the exercise program was introduced and 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 was much more marked as you can see at 12 months after introduction of the exercise program So exercise is good for the brain and the body. Even modest programs of exercise lead to enhancement in memory, attention, and decision-making, and I'll show you one more graph on that. They benefit children right through to older adults, exercise programs, in terms of brain and body. And cognitive benefits are supported by hard... uh, 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 factual observations both with respect to brain blood flow, brain volumes and brain function and we know it also benefits early disease, early Alzheimer's patients benefit from from exercise, early Parkinson's disease and patients with multiple sclerosis although there isn't evidence that uh, moderate or, or more severe Alzheimer's disease benefits, there isn't evidence as yet that they benefit and this is one other experiment by Kramer's group Which shows the difference in executive function, which is what what measures or what enables us to plan, in memory and in reaction times, in uh, people who had had exercise programmes and controls who did not, at between three and twelve months for as little as three three days a week, half an hour a day. Now we've talked about diet and we've talked about exercise and of course we don't often change our behaviours. We know everything I've said, you will all know intuitively or you've heard before but we don't often change our behaviours and maybe because we agree with Woody Allen that you can live to be 100 if you give up all the things that make you want to live to be 100. This also enables healthy ageing. I'm going to tell you the story of Stuart Wolfe, a remarkable physician. He died aged 91 in 2007. He was professor of medicine in Oklahoma University, and this is he here with a patient of his, Bill, who was a long-standing patient of his. Stuart Wolfe was a gastroenterologist and had studied also epidemiology, so he was interested in in the diseases of the stomach which were related to kind of population-based risk factors, etc., Um, And this man had had a hole in his stomach for as long as Wolf was looking after him. And he observed the changes in the mucosa from that um, hole entered into his his actual stomach, which linked with his actual stomach, and in the secretions from from that, and particularly observed when this patient was under stress or depressed or anxious, how those secretions changed. And that was the first time that that we, we identified Excessive gastric secretions with anxiety, etc. Anyway, he was giving a lecture. He had a summer place in Pennsylvania, and he was giving a lecture to the local medical society there. And after the lecture, he was talking about cardiovascular disease. And at that time, the big killer in the USA of men under the age of 50 was heart disease. So he, he was giving his lecture about the risk factors, known risk factors for heart disease, etc. And at that time it was known that fats and cholesterol and, and lack of exercise were not good, smoking was becoming into the fore, etc. And a, a GP, a local GP, came up to him afterwards and said, Actually, I work in, in, in the area and one of the villages that I go to is called Rosetto. And I never, ever see heart disease before the age of sixty five in people living in that village. Now, of course, Wolf was, was intrigued by this. And a couple of months later, he brought a few of his students down with him to Rosetta. Now, Rosetta was a small, almost Italian enclave in Pennsylvania. Uh, In the uh, late 1800s, uh, the the inhabitants of now Rosetta, Pennsylvania, had emigrated from outside of Rome, where there was no future, no hope, from their little village there, to Pennsylvania. And a priest called Father uh, Danisco actually uh, tended to them from 1896 onwards. And when he, when he arrived, he realized that they were hugely displaced. So he set about establishing a church, but also establishing a replica of the community that they'd left behind in Italy. And so they, he, he gave them seeds. They grew vines. They started to build upwards, as they had done on, on the side of the mountain, as they had done in their old village. They started to have communal meals, etc., etc. So, so this was the village that, that Wolf entered. The mayor was hugely welcoming to him. He said, come in, and he he actually he actually ordered his four sisters, the mayor's four sisters, to make the the professor and his students as welcome as possible. He emptied out the town hall, they could do all of their assessments and examinations of the participants there, and his sisters were to cook for them and to make them feel very welcome. And they did. So first of all, Wolf started going through the medical records and, he found, and the death records, and he found, yes, that the, the observation by the general practitioner was absolutely correct. People weren't dying, young as they were elsewhere in America, from heart disease. So he assumed it must be the diet, and he looked at the diet. But in fact, the diet was almost 40% fat, so it wasn't about the diet. And their pizzas were, were, were fuller of, of, very full of dough and fat, more so actually than in their, in their homeland he thought it might be something in the environment, so he tested the environment and he compared Uh, the inhabitants of Rosetta, which was actually very um, independent and very difficult to access, with two other nearby towns, one inhabited by English emigrants and the other by German emigrants, and found that their death records were the same as anywhere else in the United States. So so they concluded it wasn't environment. They looked at exercise, and Rosettans weren't particularly good at exercise, and they looked at genes, and they actually looked at the genetic um, makeup of, as as far as they could in in the 1950s of the Rosetta inhabitants but then they went to their relatives elsewhere in the USA and they found that their relatives were actually dying as they were elsewhere in America young of heart disease so there was something different about Rosetta and then he noticed and his book is still available you can, you can get a, a copy of it on, on Amazon. It's a really, really great read. He wrote it in the 1960s he noticed that the Rosettas visited each other, stopping to chat with each other, that they, it, it, they sp- spoke in Italian still on the streets they cooked for each other. They had extended family plans, sometimes three generations in one, in one house, and they had great respect for grandparents. There were 22 separate civic societies for a town of 2,000 people. He he noticed particularly an egalitarian ethos in the town that discouraged flaunting of wealth, and they helped each other. There was no suicide. There had never been a suicide in Rosetta, and when someone was down, everybody knew about it, and they all got behind that person. And Wolfe realized that the secret of Rosetta's health was Rosetta itself. And that's the first time we have this observation of the importance of social interaction and social networks and good health and extended lifespan. And there have been a number of experiments since then which have looked at this and actually we come back to our telomeres and shown that chronic stress um induces shortening, faster shortening of telomeres and cardiovascular disease and poor immune function that's psychological uh, stress, increases the rate of, of cells and in fact um, women um, who have uh, severely disabled children um, have telomeres which are ten years shorter than their age than age match controls who don't have that level of psychological stress in, in, in their lives. And there's been a very good meta-analysis looking at social relationships and mortality risk A meta-analysis of 148 studies recently showing that 50% increased likelihood of survival for participants with strong social relationships. The quality of your relationship and the number of your relationship is very important. And that the impact, the influence of social relationships is as important as hard, well-known risk factors like smoking, alcohol excess, low physical activity and high cholesterol. And what an easy intervention quality social relationships should be for us as a society. So we've looked at diet and exercise. We've looked at stress and, 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 and social networks and how important they are. And now we can actually inform the niceness to ripen that Bridget Bordeaux spoke about. Also, of course, we've talked a lot about cellular Um, Stress, but but there's external stress, visibly external stress. This is Brenda on the left and Barbara on the right. They're twins, aged 52. And Brenda has smoked half a pack a day for the last 14 years when Barbara has never smoked. And Brenda's also been exposed to significantly more sunshine than Barbara. And I think you can see the external differences um, in their appearances as a result. Are there drugs? that can manipulate uh, these aging pathways that we're talking about and help us. In fact, the U.S. um, um, federal uh, FDA doesn't recognize aging as a condition as such um, or as a disease, and and it it only legislates for medications, drugs, um, which have age-related effects but which will impact on diseases. And, of course, there's a very strong link between cancers and the ageing processes at a cellular level that we've, we've just discussed. And there are some medications which are now being used for immunosuppression and some newer ones which target uh, cholesterol. But, of course, um, they are not as yet prescribable for ageing and the ageing process. But you can imagine how popular this area is for pharmaceutical um, companies. Now, finally, I just want to talk about TILDA. And this is a longitudinal study which we're conducting in, in, in Trinity. It's unique in that it's multi-institutional, so it involves the, um, the, um, all of the major universities and the institutes of technology. And it's funded predominantly by Atlantic philanthropies and by government, and also by a very generous philanthropic gift by Irish Life, which was the first um, f- uh, gift towards uh, TILDA and enabled us, enabled us to, to leverage uh, resource from the other funders. So it's a very large study, very ambitious study, And it's, of course, in Ireland, not of course, but unfortunately, and fortunately, we're the last country, Western country, to come on board with a longitudinal study. In the States, they've had a longitudinal study since 1992, and they're ongoing because, as was recently said in the White House, no policy decisions are now made with respect to ageing in the USA without reference to their longitudinal study. So it's a very rich source of information. We're studying everything you can possibly think of virtually with respect to the experience of ageing. And and hoping to inform as a result policy, new research in this area, and we've made the design of the study such that we can compare it to the other big studies so that we can actually compare the Irish population to Europe and the USA, etc. It's a a study of people 50 and, and older. There's no upper age limit, and we're looking at... Individuals' economics, social and health status. And and the same people are being visited every two years so so that we understand the transitions that people, adults in Ireland, are going through as, as they age and some of the risk factors, therefore, in this context. People are first of all visited in their homes and we're about to go into the field with wave two. We've completed wave one and 8,570 randomly selected adults participated in that, had detailed interviews in their homes and then attended. And this just gives you a spread of where those participants came from. And then they attended one of two assessment centres, health assessment centres in Trinity and in University College Cork where they had a detailed health assessment using new technologies that we've developed in in Ireland. And these are some of the stereotypes that I hope to blow um, from the the results of the first wave of, of TILDA. Older people don't enjoy life in Ireland. Older people are a drain on their families and on society. And older people are lonely. Older people don't enjoy life. Older people as a whole experience a very high quality of life. Nine out of ten say that they appreciate things more as they get older and that they've got more control over their lives as they get older. And this just shows you um, a graph of a quality of life scale. And you can see that it's highest between the ages of 60 and 75. And then it tapers off as as people get older for for many reasons. Um, Widowhood, More slightly more social isolation and and ill health. Older people are a drain on their families. Well, we've looked at that. We've looked at the contribution older people make and the contribution that their families make to to them in in terms of space, time and money. And it was quite the... Reverse. A quarter of older households have actually given large material gifts to their children, a mean of 20,000 over the last 10 years, whereas that's a quarter, whereas the the, the reverse occurred in only 9% of cases. A third help their children regularly with household and other practical tasks, and half regularly help with grandchildren care. This is enabling labour market participation for their children. That's the level of that contribution. A quarter help friends and neighbours regularly and a fifth are very actively involved in volunteering. So that's the contribution that older people are making in Ireland. They're lonely. Only 6% are socially isolated and that, that actually doesn't change that much with age. The majority of those who are are socially isolated deny being lonely and have often been um, loners, if you like. Loneliness is prevalent in 2% of the Irish population, increasing to 2.3% in those over 75. So it's not necessarily an age-related phenomenon. There is quite a lot of undiagnosed illness amongst the population, and we're addressing this with with our our policy-making colleagues. Half of men who had high blood pressure, which we measured, and we also said, do you have high blood pressure? So we had a subjective and objective measure of this. They didn't know that they had high blood pressure. And likewise, none of the men who had osteoporosis were aware that they had osteoporosis, and remarkably, two-thirds of women with osteoporosis were unaware of that. So we believe that with the global changes that are taking place in ageing, this offers an opportunity for Ireland to create research and development in this space. If we we reflect on the the, um, number of working people per retired person in the 1900s, there were 22 working people for every retired person. In 2024, there will be two for every retired person. So there's a huge pressing need to think of new paradigms for health and social care delivery. We won't have the human resource that we're familiar with now, which currently provides these these sorts of care. And unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease and and dementia is one of the areas that that, that, that there's a pressing need to to sort in this context. This is from a longitudinal study in the States, which shows how common dementia and cognitive impairment become as people get older. Almost 80% of, of people over the age of 95 have dementia or cognitive impairment. Now, what's interesting is the high proportion in this white piece who have neither What determines resilience? What determines prevention against um, development of these uh, very disabling disorders? But this just emphasizes the need for us to develop new systems of healthcare delivery, delivery. And this was also uh, uh, stressed recently in a report by The Economist. Healthcare systems will need to shift their emphasis away from acute care to managing chronic diseases, even in uh, developing countries, and to disease prevention, irrespective of the ageing population. China and Italy already have the largest and second largest elderly populations in the world. And as the long-term demographic impact of China's one-child policy kicks in, the proportion of Chinese over the age of 65 will grow from around 8% to 16%, and it will double over a 26-year period, a very short period of time. So we're proposing that in Ireland we can actually capitalise on this perceived burden and create a bounty as a result of of these demographic changes. Create a space for young researchers in research and development in this ageing space. New services, new models of service delivery help these cultures with respect to policies Ageing, uh, health policies, social policies, economic policies and new technologies so that we're not so dependent on human resources and we can use technologies um, to create new models of service delivery. And there are a number of, of um, activities in this space in Ireland from the universities and um, uh, technology institutions uh, right through to, of course, uh, the enterprise um, Ireland and FORFOS who are thinking very actively in this space. One of these opportunities is TRILL, Technology Research for Independent Living, which was um, financed by Intel and the IDA four years ago. Um, And this has focused on developing new technologies to measure gait, to measure gait in the home, Embedding sensors in carpets so that you as an individual can know when your, your walking is deteriorating, your balance is starting to deteriorate, and implement the correct exercise programs to prevent that happening. Telephone for cognitive assessments. Building bridges for communications. Our communication systems are very non-older person friendly at the moment. So developing new systems for, for communications, et cetera. I love this story and I'm finishing on Kenneth Way. This was a true application for a Walmart um, job recently and we will have to change our attitude to retirement and our attitude to employment of older people and this man's sense of humour is is very rich. So this is Kenneth Way. I'll let you read it. Wealthy, that's wealthy blonde. <laughs> and of course, they hired. <laughs> so, we've covered, uh, we've covered the demographic of aging, we've covered some of the older living animals, and tried to understand at a cellular level why aging occurs at all and, and some of the processes that we might be able to um, mo- modulate to, to change aging. Uh, at a a cellular level but uh, what what we can do ourselves with respect to diet, to exercise, a little bit about the longitudinal study of ageing and the website is there if any of you would like the full first wave report, we'd be delighted for you to share that with us. Some of the opportunities for researchers in Ireland and I think this is really a space we need to focus on how we can create an opportunity. We're a small island. Developing services is not difficult for an island, an island culture. And we should be really focusing on that. And my favourite, how we can change our society to, to be a community again and to deal with, with this ageing um, demographic change in a way that will leave a legacy for our youth. We're, we're constantly hearing how this terrible crisis will leave a terrible legacy. Actually, we can turn it into a really worthwhile legacy if we can somehow recreate community in Ireland. This was The Economist in 1988, The Economist in 1997, The Celtic Tiger, Europe's shining light. What will our future be for our youth? Will we be able to recreate a community? And I believe firmly that an Ireland that is good to grow old in is an Ireland that is better for everybody, all society. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed for this fascinating discourse, and I now call on Professor David Coakley to respond on behalf of the Academy.
2: Um, Thank you, Roseanne, for a a wonderful lecture. Um, It it was very broad-ranging, and it has given us, I think, everybody a great insight into um, the process of ageing, both at a, a cellular level and in society. Um, you started with, with a, a very detailed breakdown of the demographic changes in society, and um, uh, these, these are quite striking. I, another figure I heard recently myself was that um, in, in the next 40 years, uh, there'll be 2 billion people over the age of 60 uh, in, in the world, and that older people for the first time will uh, be greater, the number of older people for the first time will be greater than the number of younger people or children. Um, the, you, the, the, the story of aging at a cellular level is, is fascinating, and um, the idea that you could switch on and switch off a, um, the aging process uh, is is uh, intriguing um, and um, let's hope that it um, uh, won't take too long to develop, develop that. Um, <laughs> as somebody in the I think early old age uh, <laughs> section, I was hoping that I might be wrong for the Renaissance. <laughs> Um, so, um, so th- 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 obviously, if, uh, it's, it's like the, the looking for the, um, um, the, the, the secret of turning base metal into gold in the Middle Ages. Now we're looking for an elixir that will turn uh, old age into youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, perhaps, uh, at last, we will have created here a real Tirnan Oak. <laughs> um, so, so, And I suppose the forgetting, the med- forgetting the medication would be the equivalent uh, of for falling off a horse, uh, uh, as O'Sheen did, uh, and age very rapidly. Um, again, the, the, the practical methods that you outlined uh, in relating to diet, exercise, um, and social networks are, are, um, were, were, very practical, were indeed very practical. And I think it could give us all something to think about. I know that Oscar Wilde said he always passed on good advice to other people because he didn't do very much for himself. <laughs> um, but but uh, I think we should take this kind of uh, this, this diet and exercise and the other things uh, because clearly the evidence is, is very strong in their favour. Um, perhaps the, one of the new things that we're becoming aware of in, in recent years is the importance of social connectivity. Um, and um, this, this uh, is a very, very, again, relevant factor, as you've shown, and we should look at ways of increasing social connectivity uh, in society. Uh, I happen to be co-chairman of um, the Centre for Ageing Research and Development in Ireland, and a few weeks ago we organised um, a conference on uh, ageing globally, ageing locally, and uh, President McAleese opened it, and she gave, as usual, a a, a fantastic uh, introduction. Uh, to the conference, and but uh, one of the things she mentioned was her work uh, with isolated older people, especially isolated older men. Um, she had a, she, she she became aware just as they, as herself and her husband moved around the country, and she had a special conference uh, in uh, uh, the, the, um, the 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 pres- in in Phoenix Park uh, on the whole problem of. A, of older men living alone particularly in rural communities and how, how to get them involved and they came up with this idea of involving the GAA throughout the country uh, as, as, a, as um, a conduit to bring about social uh, connectivity again I know it's something that you're interested interested in uh, Rosanne and perhaps you might talk again about social connectivity and the different ways uh, that, that it might be brought up, uh, about um, and um, Health and well-being is also uh, very important, of course, and the advances in modern technology should help uh, in in that regard. I know you mentioned it briefly, but again, I think it would be very nice if you you, um, could enlarge on that aspect of of your talk. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about social connectivity and the importance of of, of, uh, modern technology in in ageing. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. Professor Copley has already asked the first question, and then I will throw it open to the floor.
1: Well, social connectivity is difficult, obviously, and recreating communities is a challenge. Um, uh, uh, But but, uh, I suppose we're we're starting in some small way. I'll just share share an example of of what what I think might work. Um, A few weeks ago, I was in Chicago and visited a program that Michelle Obama had actually started there and, and left it three months before her husband announced that he was going to run for the presidency and she appointed someone who happens to be a friend of mine to to run the the, uh, Chicago South Side initiative. And basically they had noted in the vicinity of the university um, hospital in Chicago, the the, the Chicago um, University Hospital, that um, there were huge differences in deaths from diabetes mellitus Uh, in two uh, localities which were almost a stone's throw from each other tenfold higher in one compared to the other so, they started to explore this, and they used a, a, a technique which I were hoping to introduce into the Liberties as a pilot study called asset mapping. And basically, what they did was they, they mapped the assets of an area. Her, her premise was, and she said this in, in one of her, you know, her talks about asset mapping, Michelle Obama did, that, that there are huge assets in societies, huge assets in communities, and yet we often look on, on some of our communities as being burdens and as being, you know, problems. And having so many problems, rather than flipping that and looking at the assets and seeing how we can maximize the assets. So that was the premise from which she started. And they mapped the physical assets of, of an area. And basically walked the streets, and it's much, much more accurate than Google Earth. If I show you the differences in the slides, it's remarkable. But, but walked the streets and, and mapped where the pharmacy was, where the park bench was, where the park wa- was, where the fast food restaurant was, where the grocery store was, where the post office was, etc. Where, where the tr- public transport was, etc. And found that in the area with the tenfold higher death rates from diabetes, that they had 45 fast food restaurants and five grocery stores most of which were a 45-minute public transport journey from where the inhabitants were living. So it was much easier to go to a fast food restaurant compared to the other where there were like, you know, 30 grocery stores and a handful of fast food restaurants and they they corrected for socioeconomic background etc and found that this was the factor which most influenced these high death rates so this is where this whole concept of asset mapping came from so we're planning to introduce that it's a small thing it's a pilot in the liberties it'll be led by st james's hospital it's a health initiative but what we're going to do is engage the local school children in their transition year in doing the asset mapping. That way we as researchers will be training young children to to do research, to present their research, but also to understand their locality and to understand they're doing this mapping exercise with a view to improving the health of everybody but also the health of older people and hopefully generate real intergenerational solidarity by that. So that's that's one example. And if it works, we'll roll this out as a national exercise. The assets change every 10 years, at least they did in Southside Chicago, so the likelihood is that these are assets will also change. This is something that can be done every year. And then we'll, we'll also study, as we've done in Tilda, but in a much more granular way, the health of the households in the area and understand how the assets map with household health and quality of life and happiness and hopefully then take some sort of a, an initiative to change health health status in in households to, to something that's beneficial. But also, it will allow us, because we'll have mapped the household as well as the area, to introduce technologies for testing, and I don't like using the word testing, but we'll understand the structures of the household so that we can apply technologies, and that's a resource that no other culture has at the moment, testing, really testing technologies in the home, and seeing how households, young and old, interact with new technologies. So that will be where the R&D, the research and development piece, will come. That's, that's one example.
0: Okay. Uh, can we have, well, we'll take one down the back. Uh, can you wait for the microphone, please? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. My name is Ida Sagara, and I'm one of the people who make your life worthwhile. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, but I'm beyond the age of the cohort you found. Uh, you, you mentioned as a, a, um, a group for volunteering. What I'm surprised is how many uh, people in a very wide circle of acquaintance uh, who are my age, 78 and upwards, who are volunteering up to their early 90s. And some of them are doing two, three, or four. But we represent uh, middle class. Cohort, and I was wondering, apart from the very close cohesion of of working-class communities, which Mm. are settled, is there a sort of class
1: difference? Mm. In the passions that you've been presenting us with? Which Absolutely, is that- there is. So, study, research participation is, is much more likely in, in um, participants who have had secondary and, and, and tertiary education, much more likely. And we've had to work very hard in TILDA to make sure that our sample is representative. The first pilot studies showed exactly that, that issue.
0: Okay, there's another question here. David, yeah.
3: In this country, there's been a great deal of concern about hospital resource rationalization. And um, I'm reasonably convinced of the need uh, that's been expressed for larger uh, units and so forth. But when you gave your fascinating Chicago example and you talked about your asset mapping, and if we do such an asset mapping examination, and I can think of uh, an area I know in West Cork very well, and I can think of the asset that Bantry Hospital, for example, provides, mm. and the same which true all over the country. Um, do you see an easy answer to this? Uh, I mean, I'm sure the arguments for focusing on the larger hospital units are very strong. But in terms of your asset mapping, uh, it's a little bit hard to reconcile that.
1: So there are three, there are three kind of... Um There are three kind of uh, phases, if you like. There's the the need for an acute hospital with intensive uh, equipment and drugs, etc., and that should be for all ages. There shouldn't be a a restriction there. Then, um, as we get older, we're much more likely to get infections, which are transient, but sometimes we can get quite sick with them. We don't need terribly intense environments to deal with the sickness, but we may need some time in a facility. And that's traditionally where the Bantries et al. came into their own, um, with access to the more sophisticated hospital environments as necessary. However, it's it's about cost, it's about expense, it's about resourcing um, that second phase type illness, if you like, or that second phase. that that type of of less severe illness in in that sort of more comfortable environment. There are huge issues about access to the major hospitals for older people and for the older populations. And interestingly, from TILDA, um, people over the age of 80 were much less likely to use outpatient services in the previous years than the younger age groups. And it wasn't, when we we looked at their concurrent um, comorbidity illnesses, it wasn't because of that. And my own view is it's because our system is so difficult for people who are older, to access at the moment. You might have to make four or five visits before you get eventually a diagnosis as an outpatient, and that's very cumbersome, sitting around, waiting for x-rays, waiting for somebody to take bloods. I actually think that the over-80s who are participating just couldn't be doing with it, mm-hmm. frankly. You know. so, so I think we need to really reflect on a way to deliver a health service to people as they age, which is convenient for older people. And it mightn't be your Bantry, but it might be a new model of one-site, one-stop assessment and treatment.
0: Okay, I'll take a question from James.
2: You mentioned the importance of social networks for slowing down some of the effects of of aging. Uh, In in, in modern times, uh, we find that the workplace is a very important component in terms of our overall social networks. Mm -hmm. Would would this be another reason why we should think about uh, raising the retirement age? (laughs)
3: Um,
1: Whenever, I I don't think we should reflect on raising the retirement age without using the word choice. I think people should be able to choose, and we know choice is really important for, mood, for happiness, for, for mood, and mental health, and for physical health. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, the, the work environment is really important, and, and a number of people actually put so much of their energy and their whole network is their work environment, that once that stops, suddenly, without them having a choice in continuing it, it has a very deleterious effect on health, both physical and mental health. That's well established. So, so there are a number of different components to that, but I think it's it should. I think people should have a choice. I very much think people should have a choice.
0: I'll take two more questions. If there are. No? one here, yeah, and one at the back. Yeah, mm-hmm. here first. Yeah.
4: Thank you, Hugh Fitzpatrick, Dublin. I always like coming to the Royal Irish Academy to hear their most interesting lectures. Uh, Professor Kenney, I would have, excuse me, um, liked to have heard you say more, um, and perhaps we will hear from you on another occasion, perhaps in the Academy or elsewhere, uh, in relation to sleep, um, wine versus no wine, (laughs) uh, sex uh, and, and, and travel uh, I, I will lead up to my question. I'm dribbling a little bit here. I'm sorry, but um, no, um, excuse me. Uh, uh, no, um, no, I'm okay. No, no, um, eff- effect- effectively, um, I am um, very interested in this Antarctic sponge uh, and his immobility. Uh, I'm also very interested in the concept of slowness. Um, everybody's rushing around in life. People are getting onto jet planes. They're zooming home in their cars uh, they're wasting an awful lot of their lives. Um, I, I'm a great believer in lifelong learning, such as the Royal Irish Academy are providing us w- oh. with this evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much can be done in one's life um, uh, that is wasted uh, on non essential activities. Yes, people have commitments they have to get home to, their families I and, hate to and uh, say other this, commitments. But could you accelerate yes, your, yes, your yes, question? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, 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 <laughs> yes President. Um, um, e- eternal youth, uh, delayed aging. I, I'm very interested in the concept of uh, really um, basically youth, 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 and more youth. Uh, y- yes, a man of 58 such as myself has uh, got his aged brain in his <laughs> aged head, but I, I just would like you maybe to respond to some of the points I've made. Sorry for rambling on, President.
1: So the easiest one is sex. <laughs> <laughs> Um, sleep is very important. <laughs> um, there, again, a good friend of mine, Stacey Landau, in, in Chicago, did a study on sex and sexual activity as, as people got older, and she was, she was ridiculed for it, a very rigorously conducted study, because the media didn't believe her. The media didn't believe that a third of couples over the age of 70 in, in the States um, are sexually active at least once a week and a significant proportion engage in oral sex. And her, her own colleagues didn't, didn't believe her. Um, but, I mean, it was, it's a very well-conducted and now very well-known known Chicago uh, study. So, so sleep is important, so is sex. When I start talking like this, my son is in the front row, my kids stand up and leave the dinner table. <laughs> oh, God, you know, the thought of it, it's terrible. Um, uh, um, so, so, uh, and we've looked at all of those. I mean, I, I, it's not possible to kind of um, to cover to cover all of those those topics. Um, wine, wine is important in moderation. One or two glasses of red wine, and I believe you had a speaker here uh, recently who who um, um, encouraged Chilean above the uh, Bordeaux. So that's that's all right too. But yes, one or two glasses of wine. Alcohol excess. Um, is definitely bad for one and actually um, we can see that uh, people who, who have never drunk at that, uh, are sometimes uh, in, in some components of life even worse off than, than those who have moderate alcohol intake so I mean that's come on, plenty of sleep lots of sex and moderate wine intake, that's not a bad <laughs> note to finish the night on <laughs> uh,
0: right, I think maybe we should stop it at that point because <laughs> I'm glad to announce that there will be a glass of antioxidants after this <laughs> And it also leads me very naturally into announcing that the forthcoming meeting next year, actually, on the 16th of February, has the fascinating title of God and Sex, What the Bible Really (laughs) Says, which seems highly appropriate. Uh, So with that, I'd like to close the meeting to invite you to a glass of wine and wish you all a Merry Christmas. So thank you very much.